Welcome to the All In Remote Podcast, where we believe that companies can unlock their potential, build healthy resilience, and succeed in an increasingly volatile world. We'll explore the new challenges of leadership, best practices for developing culture and trust, and the innovative tools that help make it possible. Here's your host, Kendra Kinnison. For today's episode, we get to explore a different perspective, the future of work through investing and venture capital with Gail Wilkinson, founder and managing director of Vitalize. So Gail, you have so many valuable perspectives and insights that I hope we get to talk about today. But I wanted to start first with Vitalize directly. So its core thesis is in the future of work. What shaped your decision to focus there? First and foremost, future of work, I think, is really exciting. There's lots and lots of changes that have just started to happen and that we're going to continue to see happen going forward. It's really just a reimagining of how people work, which makes it to me personally, and I think to a lot of people right now, very, very exciting. It's a place where we're going to see a lot of innovation. And what that means from a VC's perspective is a lot of opportunity. So you pick this thesis before COVID and kind of before all of this disruption, has that shaped or changed your direction at all or the trajectory that you were on before was just reinforced? You know, historically, we've done a lot of future of work investing, but it was called HR Tech back in the day. And so I think that the pandemic has really created a lot of opportunity that reinforces what we are really interested in investing in. And it accelerates the pace of innovation there. Because now that well over half of people are working remotely, at least in some way, shape or form, and we expect to see that continue to increase, there's just lots of systems and infrastructure and ways of working at the corporate level that have to be reimagined. Such a great point. And we're living through that ourselves. I want to also take us way back. Some folks might be surprised at how you got started in the world of venture capital investing. Would you share the story of how your first project, Irish Angels, began? Yeah. I had started two companies that failed before I started Irish Angels. So Irish Angels was my third startup. And as a corporate employee. I was working at Nielsen and then Orbitz. And I really wanted to do something smaller and more entrepreneurial. So I started a company on the side in HR tech called What College Forgot. I worked on that for a number of years and that effectively failed because it wasn't focused enough and it didn't have a revenue model that worked. And then my second one was called Hire Bright. And that was a solution for helping students and recent grads find startup and growth roles, which definitely had some legs, but didn't work out for a number of like just team reasons. And so Irish Angels was the third opportunity that I had to start a business. Third time was a charm, which is great. I realized that while I hadn't thought about venture capital, it was really starting a business to help others start businesses. And that wasn't is my passion. And I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And a couple of the original board members came to me and said, hey, we wanted to start this angel network affiliated with Notre Dame, but we don't know how to do it. And we can't help you. And we can't pay you. Are you interested? And I was like, Yeah, I think that sounds really cool. So we were able to find the first 40 people in the first three or four months and got started from there. Wow. And so you were leading both Irish Angels and Vitalize for quite a while and even had some, I think, co-investing strategies there for a bit. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I just recently stepped away from Irish Angels. We have a great team that's running that program now. And I'm focused solely on Vitalize now that we've wrapped up our first fund and we have some other fun projects on the books. Yeah. So tell us about that. Vitalize is quite diverse, even within that umbrella. Yeah. 
I think that the venture ecosystem is changing a lot in terms of, I think it's driven by just the pace of innovation coming. It's much cheaper today to start a business than it ever has been before. And it's also a lot easier to start investing venture capital than it ever has been before. And what that means is that there are literally thousands of new managers raising funds right now. Plus you have rolling funds and roll-up vehicles and you've got crowdfunding And that's great for founders. There's lots and lots of ways to get capital. But what it means from a venture capitalist perspective is we have to really identify what our differentiation is. How do we help our founders? What is our focus? I think it's less and less common to see generalist funds popping up. I think we're seeing more focused funds. So for example, we're feature of work focused. You're seeing a lot of industry approaches. You're seeing some gender and diversity lens focused funds popping up in other ways that managers are finding a real approach that differentiates them. And the other thing that I see happening is, you know, we have to really provide value for founders more so than we ever have before. And so one of the things that we did at Vitalize was say, okay, we're focused on the future of work and there's still so much richness there that we don't feel like it's too narrow, but we also want to really understand, you know, what the founders want today and what they want, they do want diversity on the cap table and they want help. They want customer connections. That's the number one thing that they want. The number two thing that they want is they want intros to other financing sources. So that's where we really focus our efforts at Vitalize. And in July of this year, we spun up a group called Vitalize Angels. And Vitalize Angels, it's a group of 300 plus people today. They can write 1,000 plus checks into companies that are too early for the fund. And what that lets us do is it exposes a lot of people to the angel investing asset class. And it helps us to do more deals earlier and help those companies by providing value through our community members. And then if it works out, then our fund can come in and invest in the next round. Nice. I was listening to a few of your podcasts recently, and you can tell there's a great pipeline effect that it sounds like you're having even between the two funds and then also with the angel community. So as you're thinking about the types of companies that you want to invest in as a fund or an angel community, have you started, does it factor in their organizational structure or how folks are thinking about remote work and literally how the companies themselves do business? Has that factored into how you evaluate them? It's an interesting question. I haven't consciously thought about this because at this point, I do think all of the startups that we're talking to, Kendra, are working fully remotely. There aren't too many that I run into that have an in-person strategy at this point. Interesting. Interesting. And how quickly that shifted. If you had asked me a year ago what I thought would happen, I would have said hybrid. You know, we're going to work part-time in the office, one, two, three days a week, and then the rest of the time wherever we want to. But what I've seen play out over the past year is that employees have demanded to employers that they don't want that. They want complete flexibility. And so I think we are moving into a fully distributed set of workflows for most companies. Now, there are a few. There may be someone in my house right now who works somewhere where they're going kicking and screaming back to the office. But you know, it is going to cause employees to think about leaving. And so there will be another reckoning in the next year or two as employees like really settle into long-term solutions. And I think that's going to be fully distributed. Interesting. So you're seeing it primarily driven from the workforce perspective and the demands of that as opposed to the company strategy. I think startups get it at the company level. You know, like you guys get it, right? You're fully distributed. We were actually fully distributed before the pandemic started. We saw value in having people live in different areas. We're VCs. We need to have boots on the ground in lots of places. 
But I think that management teams that get it will be way out ahead of the others in terms of being able to attract and retain talent. And then right now I do see some firms figuring out how do we get people back in the office? And there's a lot of friction there from the employee side. Interesting. Interesting. And as you said, for those of us that were remote for reasons other than COVID, you know, this just seems somewhat business as usual, a few zigs and zags to navigate, but not near the fretting or the difficulty of folks that have large offices that aren't being used. So if you're thinking about, you know, founders or leadership teams of startups or growing companies, what other trends are you seeing things that they need to be thinking about, you know, as you look for what makes for a healthy startup that's on a good trajectory, what are the types of things that you're looking for? Yeah, at a Big picture perspective, I'm looking for founders that have that grand vision. They want to go after a really big market in a really big way. So that's number one. Number two is they haven't planned for executing on that. So I screen a lot on what have you done to date? What have you learned from your customers? What data do you have? What actual tangible things are there that we can talk about? Because these companies are very early. Oftentimes, they have only a little bit of revenue. They have a team that might be five people. It might be 10 or 15 people max. And so there's just not a lot to work from in terms of history. So I'm really trying to understand, can this founder execute towards a big picture vision? The other thing that I've really started to focus on is... What's your data science strategy? I think, once again, I mentioned how inexpensive it is to spin up a startup these days. And that means that there's low barriers to entry. So how do you create proprietary value that others can't copy easily? And it's really telling when I ask founders this question, like, how are you thinking about data science strategy? And I'm looking for specificity. We're bringing in data from our initial customers and we're going to use that to create benchmarking that then we can sell in other ways in the future is a pretty interesting example because obviously others can't copy that. They have to build their own. And once somebody is in a system that works well for them, those switching costs are sometimes high. And so if a founder does not have a good answer for that, we will pass. So it's really just a mindset of making informed decisions through data and a process for gathering those. It's tough at the very early stages because sometimes they have a data scientist on the team already. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the founder has a data science background. Sometimes they don't. What I'm more looking for is it's the vision around it. If they've already done something great, they're ahead of the game. And I love finding founders that are in that boat, but it's often, how are you thinking about ways that data can create that moat so that you can add value both for your existing customers, but also new revenue streams in the future? as they continue to expand. When we look at our existing portfolio, the ones that are really excelling, they tend to have interesting data strategies. Interesting. In another interview, I heard you talk about that as startups are kind of making it through the different layers of challenges, obviously finding product market fit is important, but you talked about another type of fit. And I can't remember if you called it founder team fit or product team fit. It was along the lines of, is this the right team to solve this problem. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. Could you share some more thoughts on that? Yeah, so founder market fit is important, largely because I tell people, I'm like, look, if you're gonna do this, you're gonna start something, you gotta give it three years. And you have to understand that there's ups and downs along the way. Even from my own experience, starting Irish Angels and then Vitalize, it gets really, really hard. And believe me, there are days where it's like, wow, everything is going wrong today. And (laughs) it really, really sucks. So you have to love it. 
I don't tend to like it when founders tell me, oh, I was doing research and I had all these different ideas and I picked this one random one. Oftentimes it's best if they know a problem intimately and they got excited about it before they even thought about the business aspect of it. So it's that passion that will get you through those low points in your journey and let you persist long enough to get to that two or three year point where you're finally seeing traction and you're on that upward trajectory. (laughs) What are you seeing in the healthiest teams though? There was a comment of you really assessing whether not just the founder, but the whole team was ready to tackle the challenge. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, we like to talk with multiple team members. In fact, when it is possible, having everybody in the same Zoom or the same room to kind of hear how they work together, think about introducing each other and giving each other the floor is really interesting to see that camaraderie and the cooperation that exists, hopefully, among the team. Because really, like one of the most important, if not the most important things about finding success in startups is being able to pull a team together around you. So if you're a solo founder or your two or three founder team, you need to hire people very quickly. And all of those people have to come in with experience and the ability to provide differentiated and unique value that creates additional value for the team. Great point. Yeah, there is that storming, norming, forming does have to happen so much faster in the startup phase. And yeah, I hiring love it. is the hardest thing. <laughs> Very true. So I just love getting your perspective. You get to see inside so many different companies and really see the dynamics, as you said, the way they share the floor, the way they interact, you know, whether they're really passionate and paying attention to the data. And I love that you're exploring, well, your thesis has given you perspective in so many different companies like ours. I think it's why I've enjoyed talking to you. You've become a mentor to me personally, not just a great friend of allocations. And I'm just curious how you think about if there's anything more you would share with founders or leadership teams at startups on just how to think about this constant volatility that seems to be present nowadays. You know, if it's not one thing, it's another. What is it? The only constant is change, you know, perhaps. But what advice would you give folks in the startup ecosystem on how to think about volatility, how to think about how we navigate that for ourselves and for our companies? I personally love the crazy aspects of starting an early fund, right? And you do have to be a little crazy to start a business or a fund because of that volatility that Kendra, you're mentioning. And so I think the best advice that I have for people is to go in eyes wide open and make sure that you really are going to give yourself that three-year period where it's like, okay, I have the bandwidth to do this. I have the mental energy to do this. I have the resources to do this and kind of give it your all and just understand that it's going to be great at times and it's going to be really challenging at times and finding comfort in the unknown. Like if you're somebody that needs all of your to-dos checked off your list at the end of every week, this is not the world for you. You know, startups, it's like a dream from a fire hose for the first however many years and the ones that make it, that actually never turns off. So you have to really understand that you have to love that challenge and that's where the people that you bring around you are really important. They have to be able to take things off your plate. So the ability to delegate is critical. The ability to trust is critical. You know, if Kendra's on my team, I want her running some stuff that I don't have to really even think about. And that's how startups can make it. It's that you bring together that team where everybody is able to run their own little piece of the organization. 
So everybody has to be entrepreneurial. The first 20 to 40 people have to be entrepreneurial in their own right in order to make it. Great point. I love that you said that the reward for successfully drinking from the fire hose is you get to continue <laughs> drinking from the, yeah, from the higher yeah, fire. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. One small thing, you should hire an EA or an admin before you think you need one. I think that is critical for founders that are, once you've raised a series A, definitely need one. Even sometimes after a seed round, it can make sense to spend the cash on a part-time or even a full-time admin, just to make sure that once again, you're focused completely on value-added things. You don't want to be spending your time doing something that you can delegate. Right. That constant reprioritization and thinking through that. Great, great point. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today and really all I feel blessed to have, you know, actually been able to meet you in person and get to talk. (laughs) Uh, That feels like such a gift these days and to get to talk more frequently. We've actually got several members of our team here and we'd like to open up the floor to see if other folks have questions that they would like to ask Gail. All right. JT has got the first one and JT, I'm going to bring you to the stage so that you can ask Gail your question. Yeah. So thank you, Gail, for sharing your perspective and insights and kind of experience thus far. But I wanted to ask, as you're looking at the future of work, kind of what are you most excited to see become a trend and maybe how company cultures are changing in this future of work to be successful? Yeah. I think the most interesting thing I am excited about right now is on the gig and ship side of the table. I think we're about to see a lot of people want multiple part-time roles. And I'm leaning heavily into this myself in terms of how we're hiring and how I'm helping our founders think about talent acquisition. Because I think there's a lot of really talented people that, for example, they want to start something, they want to start their own business, but then they want two consulting gigs so that they have enough money to live off of. And so I think we're going to see a ton of change in that area of the workforce. And then on the company culture side, I'm seeing a lot of startups beginning to think critically about inclusivity and diversity is core to what they're doing. It's not necessarily that they are starting an engagement or a culture solution for DEI, but it's really great that these solutions are baking it into the model. And so I'm very hopeful about that trend as well from a culture perspective. Great points. How do you feel remote impacts diversity? Have you seen it actually facilitate more diversity? I don't know. I don't know that I've seen data on that. But what I can say just anecdotally from what I hear when I talk with founders who are leading teams, I think, for example, when you have a fully distributed workforce and people don't have to go in the office, it helps working moms, for example. We've all seen the data where mothers have disproportionately been hit with the at-home work. And when they don't have to go to an office, I think that can be helpful. So just from an access perspective, that's helpful. I've heard that if you are one of the few minority members of a team from a racial or an ethnic or an other perspective, and you feel like you have to assimilate into office culture, now that there is not office culture, I think people are feeling a little bit more comfortable. So from that perspective, anecdotally, it does sound like the fully distributed situation can be helpful just to make people have the opportunity to thrive in these fully distributed workflows. So that is helpful. And then I also can share that as I see these solutions come through on the engagement side, a lot of companies 
their rent costs have gone down, but they are spending more on engagement. They're spending more on coming together once, twice, three times a year. And so it's a shift in budgeting. So I do think there now is this opportunity on the engagement side to get spending and dollars that were not there before, which is really cool. Yeah, definitely some shifts. Rachel's got a great question as well. Rachel, come on up and share your question with Gail. Hi, Gail. Thank you so much. This is so insightful. My question is, when you're looking at portfolio companies for your fund, what do you look for in company culture and in the leadership team? And how much importance do you put on this when making an investment decision? The real answer is probably not enough importance. But I think I'm inherently drawn to leaders that do stand for something. And it's evidenced by how when we interact with the founding team and then the other key members of the team, what's the commonality there? What do they all believe in? Like my perspective on this, and we have some core values that vitalize is that the three to five or six values become the foundation of culture, the foundation of how a team works together and how the business just exists. And if I don't get a clear sense on that in a meeting, and I think that it really I get tipped off in terms of how the different team members talk. If there's not clarity and a continuation across how they're thinking about the business, then that is definitely a red flag. But I applaud you for bringing that to light. I should be more purposeful in assessing the culture of teams up front. I think that is really important. Great question. Emily's got a bit of a follow-up. Emily, come on up. Hi, Gail. Thank you so much for you know your insight in this. Earlier, you were talking about, I think, you know, just the different people that you bring into the table. And I was wondering, just especially as a female leader, you know, what is your decision-making process or style and how do you communicate your decision-making process with your partners and your team? Also something I can probably work on. (laughs) See, it goes back to what we were talking about, Kendra. It's always an evolution. But here's my vision for Vitalize. I want us to be one of the most inclusive and successful investment organizations from an early stage perspective in the world. And how do we get there? It goes back to, you know, I have a partner, Caroline, on the investment side. We have a leadership team member named Justin who runs our marketing and content communication. And then we have a whole bunch of part-time people. And there's obviously room for everybody to grow, right? If we fast forward a number of years, I think we could have 30 people on the team. A number of those moving from part-time to full-time positions. So what I really care about and what I work with my team on is I want them to own their respective areas and like just to make sure that that fits their passion. Like, you know, Caroline loves finance and the due diligence and the data. And so she runs all of that. I really like strategy and, you know, outward facing things like business development. So I run those things. And then Justin is on marketing and PR. And when we think about making decisions... You know, I'm really looking to those two to in their areas be like, hey, we need to revamp this process and here's what it looks like. Or, hey, I've got this, you know, Justin might be like, I've got this crazy idea to start this series with all these different VCs and here's how it looks. And I'm like, great, awesome. But from a decision-making perspective, our true north is always on this. You know, we want to do great investments and we want to be an example of how you can do it in a really diverse and inclusive way. And those are our guiding principles. Those are our North Stars. So the decision-making process kind of revolves around those North Stars and it's empowering the people who are leaders in the organization to make their own decisions. And from a communication 
perspective, the way that we do it is once a week, the three of us get together and we walk through what we're working on, get insight from each other on those bigger projects, and then go back to executing individually. Awesome. Thank you so much. I want to jump in with a bit of a follow-up. I love that you're decentralized from a whole lot of perspectives, but in that you really empower your team to own their areas and own their projects. And inevitably, we're going to make a misstep. Intentionally, unintentionally, something's not going to work out the way you know it was planned or intended. How do you think about you know failure? And I'm going to put failure mm-hmm. in air quotes. But how do you think about when things go wrong, particularly if it involves a team member? Yeah, we have to have growth mindset. And I mean, if I look back at my evolution, I used to be a perfectionist and scared of failure. And I think that over time, you know, I've definitely crashed and burned a number of times and it's fine, right? Like you learn from this stuff. And I think as a leader in an organization, it is empowering people enough to go out there and try something. And then if it doesn't work, that's fine. In fact, I mean, I can recall conversations with Caroline where I'm like, I want you to run this from start to finish. And it's okay if you mess up because you're going to learn way more when you do it than if you watch me do it. And I think that I have to give up control as a leader because I become a gatekeeper. I become a bottleneck if I don't. Mm -hmm. And the only way for someone like Caroline, who's a phenomenal investor to like really come into her own, even though she has way fewer years of experience than I do, but who cares? Like she can do this. So jump in the deep end, go for it. I trust you. It's down to that trust. It's down to the shared values. And she has to know that if she does something, or I have to know that if I do something that messes up, that it's okay because we're going to figure it out as a team. Love it. It does really come back to trust and values. You know, at the end of the day, if you've got those choppy waters or smooth sailing, either one, you know, those will guide you through. Yeah. Gail, Thanks so much for your time today and really all that you've given to us at Allocations in so many ways. We appreciate you and team members appreciate you jumping in today to the conversation. Some amazing questions and insights all the way around. Thanks, Kendra. Thanks, team. This has been fun. Thank you. 